Hey, Wellpod listeners, just a quick note to let you know there's some language in this episode, so fair warning. And welcome to the second issue of The Drop. For our new listeners, these little between-season episodes that we're calling The Drop, they're not our normal episodes. They're just sort of a way of keeping in touch with our audience while we're between seasons and letting you know what we've been listening to and watching and experiencing. If you want to hear our real show, our actual episodes... We highly suggest you go back to the beginning and listen from episode one forward, because this is a podcast about creativity, and part of that experience is listening to us figure out how to make a podcast. So with that said, Mm. let's get started with The Drop. And I'll put in some kind of weird fucking sound effect. No, just just leave you (laughs) saying that. That's the the transition. That's the bridge. And weird fucking sound effect. And we're back. All right. And we're back. Um, what have you been watching or reading or Well, before digging? we get to that, oh, I have man. to ask you, you just made a journey to another part of the world that I've always wanted you to make. Mm-hmm. And I got to ask you about it. How was Delos? Delos. And explain for our listeners what Delos is. Uh, well, Delos is in Greece. It's one of the uh, Cycladic Islands. Actually, I don't know if it is one of the Cycladic Islands. It's in the very middle of the Aegean Sea. I mean, I'll, I don't screw myself up if I just make it more general. It's in the middle of the Aegean Sea. It's a very important island to archaeologists because it's this perfect place where all of these ancient civilizations crossed paths and built temples. Uh, what's amazing to me is that it was a center of commerce that was used by everyone from the Minoans to the uh, Mycenaeans to the all the people that later became what we call Greeks to the Greeks to North African Egyptians to Near East to the Persians to India like South Asia yeah. Indians like all of these cultures crossed paths there and built temples uh, right alongside each other which is a lesson in and of itself you know but this is back before monotheism kind of ruined the party because it used to be like every god all gods were legitimate and you would run into a sailor from another far off land and you'd say, you know, like, oh, what God is that? Oh, it was the God of blah, blah, blah from Syria. Oh, he looks pretty good. Yeah, well, congratulations on that God. We've got our own. <laughs> oh, yeah, what's his name? Oh, he's, then we named them after the planets. Oh, that's really interesting. Can I have some? Sure. We're all everyone. <laughs> everyone can participate. But, but I had the feeling that there was no, like, you kind of didn't want, you didn't want everyone on your side, right? You didn't want everyone praying to the same God because you're kind of, lobbying that God for your attention, right? Right. So it made everyone feel like, okay, well, I'll give, you know, a little a little offering to everyone's God, because you never know. Their <laughs> gods could become in handy at some point. But we kind of want to keep ours to ourselves. He's kind of like our God, you know. not He doesn't have to be yours too, but he's mostly ours. And we're kind of depend on him for a lot of things. So we, you know... We would like to keep our channel open, keep as much bandwidth between us and our God as possible, so we don't want to share that much of it. 
<laughs> but what I thought it was also genius about the Greeks at this time, and it's a little bitty. Island. It's tiny. And you can yeah. walk from one end to the other in twenty minutes, but to be a successful commercial destination, and nobody lives on Delos now, and very few people could have lived on Delos at mm-hmm. the time. But what they did is they said, okay, if you can afford the land, you can build a shrine to whatever religion you want. And so you've got Egyptian shrines next to Greek shrines next to Sumerian shrines. It's just crazy. Ancient stuff that that we don't even talk about anymore because it's so archaic and so old and we don't study that stuff. I mean, these these Syrian gods I was really interested in, uh, but I mean, they had temples there. Actually, they had temples there, but there was also a, the merchant's house, and the merchant did very well, you know, sailing the GNC and doing trade. So he erected, you know, tiny little statues on top of the columns around his house. So that became a really important sort of mark of like, oh, where is he from? Oh, he's a Syrian merchant, and, you know, his little offering to his god was to put his godheads on the columns of his house. But you see just so much crossover, and it also it wasn't, nothing was permanent. They were earthquakes, things fell over. My favorite was a a giant statue of uh, Apollo uh, that was built next to this giant bronze palm tree. I don't know why they had a giant. I can't remember the significance of the palm tree, but this huge palm tree. And there was an earthquake, and the palm tree fell over into the statue of Apollo and knocked him over onto the temple of Apollo. <laughs> so uh, to me, one of my favorite sort of pieces of trivia about the island is that it was the it's it's important and it's considered neutral ground because it was one of the first temples ever erected to Apollo and the Herculean temple of Apollo is still sitting there and apparently Apollo was very particular about what happened on his island apparently he was a bit of a neat freak he didn't like mess he didn't like death which is messy yes and he didn't like birth either because that's messy too yeah, arguably more so. More so. So the rule was you cannot die or be born on Delos. So wow. right across from Delos, there's another island. I forgot the name of it. Uh, and if you felt either situation coming on, <laughs> about to give birth, about to die, you got to get in a boat and get across the river or you're going to make Apollo mad. Now, they would forget about this Apollo's rule occasionally. Kind of a dick. <laughs> they would forget this rule occasionally, and build. Um, they, they would start building cemeteries because it was a pain in the butt to go across the thing, you know. And, and then some more, I'm guessing, more of a hardliner would be in charge of the city, and he would look. He would take over control over the city and say, "What are all of these cemetery? What are these headstones doing in?" plain view of Apollo's temple. He can see this. So uh, they would dig up everything, everyone, and move them to the other island. So there's this huge necropolis on the other island. And then they would like build a, you know, but then they would, you know, get tired of doing that and they would start building a cemetery someplace out of view of Apollo's temple until they would build another temple to Apollo. (laughs) And then they would go... He can see it from here. Oh God, we have to move our cemetery again. So, I mean, like, it's it, it, you know, and I kept imagining these scenarios of like, oh, you feel like you're dying, get out of here, you know, and like get to the other island. You get over there, and it's this scene from you know Holy Grail. I'm not dead yet. I feel happy. You're stone dead in a moment, and then like you know, and it gets over there, and like, huh. 
And he's like probably asking to come back and like, I think it was a false alarm. I feel okay now. Like, no, you're going to be dead any minute now. You can't come over here if you're going to die. <laughs> well, we'll uh, include some links in the show notes uh, to websites where you can see pictures of Delos because you, you, you kind of got to see it to see what we're talking about because this is not a what you consider perfectly preserved archaeological site. You can walk all over everywhere and into homes that are you know, thousands 12, of years 15 old. BC, and they yeah. ask you, please don't walk on the floor mosaics and they trust you not to. And that's about it. And you're on your own. It's an incredible place. It really is the most, I mean, there's a reason why it was, it's the most important archeological site of the ancient world, because it's just, every culture is represented. It's pretty well preserved. Um, it was also when I was there, like, Standing in a broiler, it was so hot. It was like a hundred degrees, and it really tests your dedication to uh, ancient history. <laughs> <laughs> you're walking around with an umbrella, like melting, and like, and you're trying, you're, and you've, you're looking at this uh, little, you know, black and white guide map. You're like, the house of the trident. Oh God, I think I passed it. Oh, screw it. Did you bring a water bottle with you? Oh yeah, no, we 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 came prepared, but it was just so you didn't hot. fill it with bourbon this time. Oh no, no, no! I learned my lesson because <laughs> one time we were camping, and <laughs> we lost somebody, and Brannon decided he was going to walk out in the woods to go find Rick, and grab bottle. Now it was an Nalgene bottle. We had a tradition of when we go camping to alleviate ourselves of the weight of glass, pour the bourbon into a Nalgene bottle. And then hike that in. Well, we also have Nalgene bottles for water, but Brandon grabs Nalgene bottles. I'm going to find Rick with nothing but a knife and my water. <laughs> Gets a couple of miles out in the woods in the middle of summer. He's partially like, ah, I guess I'm going to have myself a drink of cold drink of water. <laughs> in between screaming for Rick to come back from starvation or wherever the bear has found him. Turns up the Nalgene bottle and like, like lug. No. <laughs> no, you no, didn't I, spit it out. I didn't spit it well, out. Well, good for you, my I, southern friend. Thank you. I know. I, I, I drank it. I was like, immediately, that's a surprise, right? And you're expecting water and you get straight <laughs> bourbon, you know? And I was like, oh, God. Oh, geez. And then I thought like, oh, God. I'm out in the woods and I got nothing to drink but bourbon. And then I just kind of flipped it in my head and went, hey, wait a minute. I'm out in the woods and I got nothing to drink but bourbon. This isn't so bad. Man, I'm thinking ahead. All right. Well, with that, why don't we get to our recommendations to sure. our listeners? Should we have transition sound effect here? You, you just did it. All right. What have you been listening to and watching, sir? Uh, I'm going to start with listening to. Uh, oh, I've wait, been... I, can do a, I can do a drop sound effect with my... Oh, do it. By, let me see if I can do it. I used to be able to do this just by flipping oh, or weird. flicking my... Chin. No. Huh? Wait. Ow. <laughs> okay, fuck it. Don't hurt yourself. <laughs> you get the it's, idea. It's not worth it. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Music-wise, I've still been listening to... I mean, I've been listening to them for years, but I remember that band Distot. Dutch 
band. It's spelled D E space S T A A T. Uh, well, I'll put the link in. But okay. I've just been a fan of uh, of them uh, and the lead singer, whose name I'm going to butcher, uh, Tor. I have to dub this in later. There's going to be a really bad edit here while I go look up his name, <laughs> figure out how to say it, and then insert it here. Tor Fleum, something like that. <laughs> That's not his name. But I'm just very interested in these artists who that take all aspects of their job equally seriously and ambitiously. So for him, music, promotion, music videos, the concert experience, all of it is just one big art project. I think he was an art student when he started the band and uh, I was just really happy to find a band that makes really catchy uh, really fun music and also makes really fun catchy music videos like we kind of mm. lost the art of the music video mm. I think you know MTV became about reality TV and other things but Destat's music videos are so entertaining there's so much fun and I'm going to recommend we'll put it in the show notes to get the link and all that stuff straight but there's a, a video for their song, Pep Talk. And it just depicts like uh, someone's basement party at like 6 a.m. Everyone's gone home except for people that are too drunk to realize the party's over. And the whole thing is just one guy demonstrating every dance move that he knows. The camera never moves. <laughs> it's just like four, four and a half minutes of one guy <laughs> showing off like, like he's on coke or something. Just like every dance move that he knows. And, uh, and I recommend watching the video for Witch Doctor first because there's an inside joke or reference to Witch Doctor at the end of the pep talk video. And I, I've been listening to these guys for a while, but I'm very distant, uh, proud of them because I got into them when they were playing on like little radio stations and stuff. And then I just checked out their latest live show. They're, they're not quite stadiums, but they're close. Huge venues. They're selling out huge venues in Europe. They haven't been to America yet. But they're selling out enormous uh, venues in Europe, huge light shows, really well designed. I just it, it makes me happy to see talent rewarded, right? That he's this guy is clearly working his butt off, and he's talented, and it's nice to see it rewarded with you know, you know, a, a stadium full of screaming fans. So that's my music re- recommendation, Destat. D E space Stott, like the the, the state. state. Yes, S T A A T. With Tor, <laughs> I highly doubt that's how it's pronounced. Tor Florum. Tor Florum. Tor Florum. God, we sound so American. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll provide a link for that. Um, well, I, you know, I, I only have a couple of things this week. One is um, I started reading the new novel by Neil Stevenson, mm-hmm. who is one of my favorite hard sci-fi writers. And it's called Fall, and it's it's really good. I can't give a full report on it because I'm in the middle of it right now. But what I can do is recommend Neil's last novel, Seven Eves, which is not a short book, <laughs> but, man, just a tour de force about the tenacity of human survival. Mm. And... It also has what is maybe 
the best first sentence of any sci-fi book I've ever read in my life. And the sentence is this, the moon blew up without warning mm. and for no apparent reason. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, I remember standing in the bookstore and reading it going, okay, I'm buying this book. Like, like immediately high stakes. And, uh, and it, you know what it did is it actually it reminded me of, did I ever tell you this story about the um, six-word novel contest that was happening sometime in the mid-20th century. And uh, oh. there was this contest amongst writers to see who could write n the best novel in six words, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And and Ernest Ham Hemingway oh, very I, famously yeah. won this contest. And the six-sentence novel was, Baby Shoes for Sale, Never Worn. I know. I mean, it just sends chills up my spine. It's incredible. Every time I hear that that sentence, it's uh, it has everything that you would want in a novel condensed down into six words. But that shows you he was such a, a, a wordsmith. And under in like no one else understood the power of concision. Of course, he would win the six word novel contest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So anyways, um, I highly recommend Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson if you're looking for a great, riveting, hard sci-fi novel. So what's your next recommendation? Uh, let's see. Books. I've been talking about this one for a year. Uh, Robert Sapolsky's book, Behave. Mm. If you're interested in neuroscience, if you're interested in how your own brain works, go read it. Uh, if you've ever had this experience in your life, and I'm sure you have, we all have as human beings, we've all had the experience of uh, saying to our, doing something or saying something, and then immediately asking ourselves, why did I do that? You know, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Is, is, isn't it strange, right? Yeah. Shouldn't we yeah. know what our, what we're, shouldn't we, if we're fully the authors of our own behavior, shouldn't we not be surprised? Every time I see Crossroads. <laughs> Man, I'm glad I have nothing that big. Oh. Um, but I mean, it's it's not it's not at all a self help book at all. So it's a weird thing that I would phrase it that way. It's a hard science book uh, by Dr. Robert Sapolsky, and in it, he basically unravels the brain, sort of reverse engineers it from how it's evolved over millennia. So you start with you start with a bundle of nerves, you know. Uh, in a worm, right? At, the, at one end of it, there's just more nerves than there are on the other end. And then it just kind of, this is my metaphor, this is not Robert's. Uh, my metaphor is that over time, it just kind of snowballs. It just kind of rolls downhill and gathers more neurons over time. <laughs> it, and adds complexity and layers, but it layers and layers up as it gets further down the hill and further along in time. And so by the end, then you've got, you know, the cortex and the prefrontal cortex and the, uh, uh, and the spindle neurons that only we have that are only shared by three animals. This blows my mind. There's, uh, we independently evolved a different kind of neuron, but they're spindle neurons and they're all, and they evolve separately and they're present in only three species that we know of. And they're not related. It's us, elephants, and dolphins. That's it. And that's like 
the supergroup of hyper social animals for whom sociability is absolutely their key to survival. Anyway, I'm going off in the weeds because that's not the point of the book. But if you've ever wondered how you come to the conclusions that you come to, this is the book. Because it it's for me, it has led to a more patient view of myself. Because after you read the book, you realize your brain has been making these decisions based on old structures that have evolved for millions of years. And they start, I mean, they, they start in the, you know, perception and then they go roll down into the center of the brain and they bounce back and forth between the cortex and the more primitive parts of your brain, all unconscious until it finally kind of arrives at a consensus and says, decision time, this is what we're going to do. This is what I think, et cetera, et cetera. And then the funny part to me is that then you kind of reward yourself with this sort of, I just had an idea. <laughs> like, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> the, the machine bubbled up a foredrawn conclusion, and now you're taking credit for it. <laughs> and for me, it's been incredibly like... Uh, I don't just mean very forgiving of myself because now I'm like I'm now I'm not mad at myself when I make when I do when I do or say stupid things because now I'm like well I'm not in charge of any of this it's there there is a billion calculations happening unconsciously every second and at the end I am now deciding that this was the consensus view and like but I don't know how it, how I arrived at it you have to read this book because the examples. All the research and examples he cites will absolutely humble you <laughs> and take all of this, like, well, aren't I smart and clever and rational? <laughs> just devastates it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny. And he's funny. And he's, he's, and he's, and he's a good writer. Uh, that's, what I've been, that's what I've been reading. It's called Behave uh, by Robert Sapolsky. You know, that also reminds me of this. I had this great interview, Oprah Winfrey, uh, least surprising thing I've ever said in my life. Um, Oprah Winfrey's podcast is really good. <laughs> and she recently had Malcolm Gladwell. She's on. got a hold of you too. <laughs> yeah. She's got a hold of you too. She recently had Malcolm Gladwell on to talk about his new book, Talking to Strangers. And uh, he has come up with this idea about, uh, he calls the truth default. And it's a very strong point. He's talking about us, our ability to be conned. Mm. And, you know, he says there is this thing in us that tends to, and it's, this has been experimentally proven, tends to trust what is presented to us as truth at first. And the question for a while was, well, how is that beneficial evolutionary wise? Mm -hmm. And he says, that's, it's very beneficial evolutionary-wise, because if you think about us, we are social animals that have built tribes and then kingdoms and then nations. And if we're constantly questioning each other, we're not going to be able to build a society. So we are evolutionarily built to default to the idea that everybody's on the up and up. And uh, I thought that was a very interesting insight. And I'm going to loop it back to Sapolsky's book, what's responsible for that particular ability to, I guess you would say, prioritize um, the thoughts and feelings of another, of another 
over your own, right? Because they, you, someone's just bringing you, you don't know who this person is, they're just bringing you some information like I blah, blah, blah. And you're going to go, okay, well, I'm going to just, I'm, I'm going to run with it. Yeah. That is the Von Economo spindle neurons. Only us dolphins and elephants. It's that feeling you get when you're walking into a secure building with a pass and somebody wants to walk after you and you let them. Uh-huh, right, this is right. one of the biggest tricks in social engineering when people are trying to get into secure facilities because there's that little tug in our gut that says, oh, don't, don't yeah. question that person yeah. because we're afraid of being shunned by the group for not trusting. Because yes. Of, yes. We, there's the wet Absolutely. blanket effect. You know, We've all known the wet blanket in the mm-hmm. office yeah. who questions everything. What happens? That person does not get invited out. That person does not get invited for drinks. That person is not mm-hmm. because they're always questioning and they're a Debbie Downer. And so we have this built-in thing that says, mm, don't, don't make that person think that you're questioning them. Yeah. yeah. So my other recommendation this week is a podcast. Mm-hmm. And... You know, in we're still a relatively new medium with this, and there's a lot of commentary. There's a lot of comedians. There's a lot of um, politics. There are very few podcasters out there right now, particularly independent podcasters, who I would consider to be artists. Hmm. And Scott Carrier is one of those people. Scott Carrier is a truly gifted journalist and writer, particularly a writer. Got his start with um, This American Life early in the day and is now doing sort of his own thing. And he has this podcast called Home of the Brave. And the whole point of it is for him to travel America and the world, really, to suss out what our identity is as human beings, but more particularly as Americans. And the reason Hmm. that I wanted to bring up this podcast in particular is because he's suffering a little bit of a financial setback right now, but I do believe that what he is doing is very important. So important. I really think someone should nominate him for a MacArthur genius grant. But in the meantime, while they have not, I highly suggest you check out home of the brave in particular, his most recent episode is called fund drive, which Obviously, at the beginning, there's a pitch for right. to help him continue his work, but he attaches an episode that he did way back in 1991 that is my favorite episode he's ever done on this podcast called The Green River. I sent it to you. Mm-hmm. Did you listen to it? I'm not, I'm not sure. Remind you, me. You got to listen to it. Um, it's just his his trip. The the in Utah, the Parks Commission gives out very few passes every year to people who want to canoe the Green River. Yes. And he got one of them. Uh, Yes. And it's just about his journey in a very tough part of his life, trying to figure out what the human experience is supposed to be in one episode of this podcast. And it is gorgeous, gorgeous writing. And so we're going to provide a link on, in our show notes uh, but it's called Home of the Brave. You can actually just go straight there to homebrave.com. I believe that's what it's called, homebrave.com, yeah. And you'll have a link to all of his episodes and a link to his donations page. If you feel like tossing him a couple bucks, cool. 
you obviously don't have to. You still have access to all of his work. Uh, but he is a, an independent podcaster that needs support right now. And the name of it again? Home of the Brave. Home of the Brave. You got anything else? Yeah, I got something else. You remember our friend Nu Moa? Yeah. Yeah, she's an old friend of ours, and she has been working very hard for the past year on her own podcast, and she just released it. Oh, great. About a, about a month ago. And uh, it's called Mong Umentary, H-M-O-N-G-U-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y. Mong Umentary. You can find it at mongumentary.com. People think it's pronounced Hmong. It's just Hmong Umentary. Anyway, uh, my wife, Sharon, is Hmong. And uh, now a lot of my friends are Hmong. <laughs> and I've known Nu for a long time. And we, you know, she asked me for some, for some advice. And I think I probably thought like, oh, you know, well, it's hard. Good luck. Blah, blah, blah. It's great. She has the most natural conversational talent with her guests. They're like, I'm, I'm invested in, uh, you know, the Hmong community because I married, you know, a person who was Hmong. And for those who don't know, because most people don't. Uh, the Hmong are an ethnic minority in Southeast Asia, and they fought on uh, the United States' behalf uh, in the secret war in Laos before it became the Vietnam War. Right. So uh, I may be getting some of this wrong, but as many of them died fighting for us than Americans died fighting in the Vietnam War. And the reason there are so many Hmong in this country now is because there was a tacit agreement. They're like, hey, if you lose, you're not going to be very popular around here. You can come live with us from the United States. Anyway, we all know how that went. And uh, we brought a tremendous number of Hmong over into this country in the early 70s, and uh, Sharon was, was one of them. Uh, and Sharon is the first guest. She is oh, wow. episode number one. I appreciate my generation because we were, you know, basically the first group of young people to go through the education system. Like my sister is like the first Hmong female lawyer. And there was all these firsts with my What, what year did you guys immigrate? Well, over? I was born in Laos in 74. And then uh -huh. we came to America in 76. Okay. So we were part of that whole first wave. Mm -hmm. And um, thankfully we had sponsors. So we had a church that sponsored us in Iowa, uh, Zion Lutheran. And so we had like this huge community of support in this small town and it was, you know, the best way to be introduced to a new country. I'm interested in it because I'm interested in the culture. But I think here's what I think what anyone would like about it is that it's not very often usually you get uh in this culture it's like why guy interviewing somebody or people kind of trying to talk over that wall. But this is nice. It's it's people that are all in on the inside, uh, talking about something uh, that normally we wouldn't be invited to, you know. So it's this wonderful opportunity to sort of be at the table while you know people kind of really talk inside baseball about the particulars of their culture. Because you know, like you said, I come from a very traditional, very strict shaman family. And my dad has beaten traditions into me so hard that even though I rejected it for most of my life, like you'll tell me, oh, you're, you're, you're pretty moment, you're pretty traditional. I was like, really, am I? 
but I, you know, it, I, it has affected me. Right. I feel like sometimes you don't realize it until you yeah. get older. You're like, oh, I'm just like my parents. Yeah, for right. sure. Not intentionally, but yeah. It's, it's, it's great. She's doing a really, really good show. Her, I'm just, I'm very proud of her as well. And I think anyone would like it, not just people who, who are married to Hmong people. <laughs> <laughs> all Hmong people, all non-Hmong people. Uh, we get something out of this. It's fascinating. She's a really good interviewer. Well, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't listened to it yet, but I will. Well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't point it out to you. Yeah, but I will. I will, New. I'm it's, looking forward to it. Yeah. Don't hurt yourself. Ow! Okay. Stop, <laughs> stop, stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. But something else I wanted to do today, Brandon, is um, if our listeners who have followed us since the first season remember, one of our most successful episodes was The Martini Samurai with my friend Leon Inglesrude, who played Bendix in Hell on Wheels and is a good friend of ours. And we decided that this year we were going to make Leon a contributing producer to the well, and we charged him with bringing us an episode, which we're still waiting, waiting for. on. He's been busy. He's been busy, but I thought maybe we could call him up and see what's going on yeah. with that. Let's give him a call. All right. Yo. Leon, how are you, man? I'm pretty good. Where are you? What are you doing? I'm in Montclair, New Jersey. I'm uh, working on a show, and it's a collaboration with a dance company uh, called the Streb Extreme Action Company. Our show has uh, a bunch of stuff falling on us uh, from a machine that's suspended above the stage, and it's got two 16-pound bowling balls swinging through the air <laughs> and so we're doing stuff where we're trying to keep ourselves from getting hit by bowling balls while having molasses and flour and paint balls and sprinkles and sugar and water dropped on us yeah yeah as you do so leon the the the, the pivotal question for us uh, that we wanted to ask you on this phone call today is where is the episode you promised us. Yeah, man. The episode I promised you is, um, it is in the future, is where it is. It's stuck in the future. It keeps slipping, slipping, slipping into the future, as somebody once said. Uh, and I chased it this summer all the way around the world. Uh, so I, I made a, a, a clean lap around the world this summer, uh, first in Greece and then in Japan and then back here. Uh, but yeah, it's still there. I can, I can see it. I, I can, ch I'm chasing it and, and I am going to catch it. Well, as a little teaser, why don't you, uh, tell us what the episode's about and who you're going to be interviewing? Um, I'm going to be, uh, interviewing a guy named Darren L. West, who is a sound designer. He is, a uh, one of the few sound designers in the world who has a Tony award, who has sort of in many ways, redefined what theatrical sound design is, not only in this country, but in, in the world. Uh, he's had a, a really um, amazing impact that's kind of invisible uh, to a lot of people. When you go see shows now, the way that you hear those shows are is very much, to my mind, affected by uh, this guy's brain. Awesome. Well, that that sounds right up our alley. We're looking forward to it. Thanks for uh, letting us check in no with you. No problem. Anytime, man. Take right. it easy, man. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. It was funnier last time. 
<laughs> I don't know. I remember Leon being funnier and drunker. <laughs> but you know what? Something else that I wanted to include on this episode is he did send us a test sound mix when he was learning how to sound edit. Right. I thought that was an audition. <laughs> it's really funny. And we're going to tag that on to the end of this episode so you can listen to it if you like um it's it's well i think it's well worth a listen a fortune teller's dream a well-maintained machine that's me The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and myself, Anson Mount. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can also join our newsletter by going to our website, thewellpod.com, and hitting the newsletter tab. And please, 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 if you like our show, tell your friends about us. We want to keep growing this campfire circle, and word of mouth is the best way to do it. For links to everything we talked about today, including the band Dishtot, which you're listening to right now, Go to our website, thewellpod.com, and check out the show notes beneath this episode's play bar. Thanks for listening, everyone. And until next time, remember, there's not just one Leon. There are many, and they are legion. Hi, Leon. Hi, um... What do I call you now? Well, I guess I'm Leon. Well, okay then. Hello, Leon. Hello, Leon. I'm Reverb Leon. And I'm Robo Leon. Shut up, Robo Leon. So, aside from showing off, what are we doing here? Oh, this is just an audio message to let Anson and Brandon know that even though we're in North Carolina right now, we've been doing some work to get our podcast game up to snuff. So you mean that this gives them an example of the current level of quality that we have at our disposal? Yes, yeah, so we got a cardioid mic that can plug directly into the USB port on our Mac. It also has XLR, so if we want to upgrade the quality of all this, we can get a better interface to bring a higher quality signal into the Mac. Also, didn't we get a text message this morning? Yes. So the second part of this message is to let Anson and Brandon know that we are totally on board for the Japanese competition show discussion. So we'll be back in New York City. Wait, but wait. What? Let's throw him a bone. Okay. Robo-Leon? The collective known as Leon will be back in New York City on April 21st, 2019. Same year as Blade Runner. Same year as Akira. Okay, okay, that'll do, Robo-Leon. This recording was done very quick and dirty. All editing and effects were done on GarageBand on the Mac. And I'm hearing some mic pops when I replay it, so I'm looking into how I'll address that either through technology or working up my mic skills. Thank you.